Welcome to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Getting Common covers a variety of topics and features guests from business, law, politics, government, education, and some of the most insightful entrepreneurs. It's a refreshing common sense approach to some of the most important discussion points today. Now, here is your host, Carlos Chapman. Hello, everyone. I am Carlos Chapman, and I'm your host of Getting Common. In my day job, I'm an associate professor at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia, where I teach all things business law and business ethics. This week, we are discussing a topic that I think is evergreen, um, possibly like a multi-thousand years old topic, which is what is the difference between appreciating a culture and appropriating a culture? And why does that even matter? And we have Dr. Tressie McMillan-Cottom here today with us to break down the sociology of cultural appropriation. And I brought my friend, Professor Shantavia Johnson here to explain to us how, if you are appropriated, how do you protect your IP? How do you protect your money? And how can we possibly fix these things as consumers of social media and creators of social media? So I will start by having the ladies introduce themselves further. First, Tressie. Well, hello. First of all, so pleased to be here. Uh, anytime I can be with Carlos and Shantavia, it's a really good time. And I mean that, y'all. It's a really, really good time. Uh, it's such a good time. I'm not even sure y'all are going to be able to hear and see all of the good time. But uh, it's not all fit for consumption. <laughs> I am Tressie McMillan Cottom. I am a senior research faculty at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life. Uh, Department of Information Technology and uh, Sociology at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Uh, and I am an opinion columnist for the New York Times. All right, and Shantavia, go ahead. Thank you so much, Carlos. I am Shantavia Johnson. Echo everything Tracy said. I am just so thrilled to be in this space today, virtual or otherwise. It feels like a woo-saw a little bit. I don't know what we'll get to today mm -hmm. through all the fun, but I'm excited to be here. I do a lot of things. Sometimes it feels like all the things, but essentially I sit at the intersection of intellectual property law, entrepreneurship, and culture. I have a couple of roles now. I serve as the Associate Vice President for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Clemson University. I'm the founder of a company called Leverage, where essentially our goal is to help Black women leverage their knowledge and their ideas to build companies and brands for themselves. And I do a fair amount of consulting on other topics, too, related to IP. So I am excited to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation, Carlos. You're welcome. I also love how modest my friends are. I'm like, that's all you're going to say about yourself? <laughs> That's it. I won't listen. Tell me, we had thirty minutes. That's right. right. <laughs> I mean, the whole show could be you and Tressie introducing yourselves. So it's you know, I appreciate y'all being modest. Although you, sh we shouldn't be. We should all be more boastful. But you know, we do what we have to do. All right. So let's kick off the discussion, and I'd like to start with Tressie on this one. So periodically, possibly every day, something mm -hmm. happens that makes a different cultural group complain about appropriation or colonization. And in response, the people who are borrowing or stealing say, you're too sensitive. It's a melting pot. We mm -hmm. just liked it. Or then we get the well actuallys, right? The mm -hmm. well actually, the Chinese actually started this. You didn't, right? All those right. kinds of things. Yeah. So let's start with some basics. What is mm -hmm. cultural appropriation? And and why do these groups complain? Why is it so hurtful to us? Wow. Well, those are actually two big questions. So I'll start with the the more tangible one because I do think definitions 
and words matter a lot. So one of the problems that we have when we talk about appropriation is that we're using one word to mean multiple intersecting things. Uh, and as is often the case, I think, in the public discourse, some of that is about bad faith. We don't want to use more precise words because it gets us closer to actually making progress on some of these things. And so uh, when we conflate different demands and ideas and feelings into one term, it tends to muddy the waters and uh, we never quite make progress. That's why those conversations feel so circular and why it does feel like they happen uh, every day because we're just kind of circling around the idea. So what we mean as social scientists when we talk about cultural appropriation and what I think the groups that are being appropriated generally mean when they levy the charge of cultural appropriation is about extraction. That's the key word, extraction. So there's a difference between extracting a culture's uh, knowledge production, their cultural knowledges, what they have built as a cultural and given meaning to, uh, and appreciating it. Okay, appropriation means that you see something that you like that is native or indigenous to a group of people who have sacrificed usually a significant amount of social status, well-being, uh, and economic value to create and protect that culture. You are extracting it for your own enjoyment and then usually leveraging it for your own individual gain, whether that be economic gain or for status. And what we're usually talking about in the culture is status. All right. We're saying you extracted something that is legitimately owned and participated in by one culture so that you can have the status of what that culture produced without the burden of what it cost that culture to produce it. That's just pure extraction. That's the story of uh, colonialism. That's the story of white racial violence. That is the story of fundamentally capitalism. You are extracting value from a group of people, and because you extracted it, they no longer get the same return to owning and producing that culture. Now, that's different from appreciating a culture, which in a global society, especially with our communication technologies, the internet allows people to produce culture and share culture at like rapid fire speed. Um, and yes, cultures have always exchanged uh, information and knowledge and experiences and art and culture. Uh, and that is the human condition. That's what human beings do. Uh, but we are being disingenuous when we don't acknowledge that not every group gets to benefit from that sharing of culture, uh, both equally or fairly or on good terms. And that's where I think Shantavia's work uh, comes in. It is not saying don't appreciate it. Listen, wear your cornrows, but uh, be very clear about who owns them. And the fact that you can wear those cornrows and not lose your job, right? That's about acknowledging that you are able to dabble in somebody's culture while it costs some people a lot to own and participate in their own culture. Now, Shantavia, you know, Tressie kind of led to the segue of, you know, the fact that because it is extracting and it's often extracting value that gets monetized, that brings us lawyers into the mix, right? It brings the capitalism and it brings the lawyers into the mix. Um, and so my question for you is, you know, what can you, can we do or individuals do legally when someone goes from merely appreciating and copying my cornrow design mm -hmm. to monetizing my cornrow design, how can I protect 
my design of cornrows from being extracted and generating someone else's wealth. Okay. So I know this is mostly audio. We're recording the video, but I'm about to jump out of my seat because (laughs) I just absolutely love, Tressie, the way you articulated a clear definition of appropriation. We need to invite you to the next UN World Intellectual (laughs) Property Organization meetings about this topic because there's so much just fundamental confusion and distinction between the way we even talk about these words. So thank you so much for laying that out, because it is such a great segue, Carlos, to your question about what do we do about all of this, whether it's appreciation, appropriation, extraction, all of those things can equal intellectual property infringement. And that's where there's a disconnect, because appreciation, appropriation, extraction, whatever you call it, the law provides some barriers and some frameworks that we can use to leverage our really good ideas, our traditional knowledge, ultimately our intellectual property. So if your specific question is what can we do in the short term? So there's a big picture, then there's like the day-to-day, right? So the first thing is you can own your knowledge, you can have enforceable rights in your knowledge, they're not actually the same thing. Owning something and enforcing those rights Mm -hmm. are different. So having an understanding the distinction between those two things is important. But then also something that Tressie said that that is critical is having access to the legal system. We as Black people have owned things for generations. We have had rights in things for generations. We may not have had access to the legal system in each and every instance that there was appreciation or appropriation, right? And in some instances, we haven't had ownership or enforceable rights either, but we have to have those three things. So as an innovator, as a creator, as a person who is creating things online or offline, ownership, enforceable rights, and access to the legal system are critical. But there are other things too, especially when we talk about cultural appropriation. There's credit and attribution, as Tressie alluded to, there's compensation, and then there's legal power, right? And Carlos, you and I are law professors, we're lawyers by training. We know the Supreme Court sets the lay of the land in, in many instances without reference to the important sociological and cultural context that exists beyond and below these layers of law, right? And so we have our Supreme Court for generations essentially supporting these structures that allow the winner to make the rules, to allow the the colonizer to make the rules. So what happens in that case, right? And what happens is when you write the rules, you write them in a way that benefits you. So we have these rules, these intellectual property rules that in many instances are written in a way that do not Uh, how can I say, do not appropriately take into consideration the idea that intellectual property can be communal. It doesn't have to be individual. It doesn't have to be something that is about like me being incentivized to make more money and, and make more widgets. Communal intellectual property is a thing for generations, for millennia, Black communities, uh, Asian communities, Indian communities, many communities have created and innovated without these rigid structures. And so I always think starting fundamentally with this conversation about intellectual property is to say, let's work within the system, but also understand we need to break the system and, and recognize that the system wasn't created for the way in which we think about innovation. You know, what I find interesting when I talk to the kids or not even the kids, right? And they will say things like, I'm not a capitalist, so I'm not going to trademark or copyright mm-hmm. anything. 
because I don't want to be a part of the system and buy into it. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to give the man this, that, and the other. Um, and so I guess I'll kick this one to you, Shantavia. Like, is there any way to protect your IP, your ideas, or even your culture in our current system without participating in that system, without registering your IP, without, you know, can you really just put something out there on social media and, you know, let it go? Um, so I, I think so. Yes and no. And I, I understand that to some extent. When you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, they've mm-hmm. decided not to register trademarks, not to pursue copyrights, to have a decentralized structure. And they've been able to do phenomenally well fundraising, creating change and, and um, supporting institutions and supporting localized groups, even though there's no, quote, trademark or no individual way of thinking about ownership. So I do think the two things can exist simultaneously. But here's the distinction, and it's not always about money or capitalism. The ownership piece allows you to dictate what happens. So we have things like the creative commons and copyright, where I own a copyright, but I get to say who gets to use it, how they get to use it, and what they need to do with it. There are also systems where Uh, Organizations will support communities who have created traditional indigenous knowledge. And it's not about individuals necessarily making money, but it's about how do you support the infrastructure in that community? Are you building roads? Are you providing access to health care? Are you building schools? And so there are ways you can participate in this ecosystem on social media without only thinking about ultimately what's in it for me. But having that ownership, frankly, is the first piece and the first way to even Think about that. Mm. Absolutely. You know, what it makes me think about, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of studying of slavery and reparations and how that has translated into the way that we are perceived today um, in my scholarship. And um, what I what I always, you know, tell my students is the ability to own things is new for us, (laughs) not for everyone, versus Mm -hmm. being property. Um, And so I encourage them, right? Like we were the asset. So the idea of assets owning assets is a foreign concept. And I think, you know, it plays out when you see, you know, who gets to have an IPO and gets a few billion in cash versus who gets merged in and gets acquired Mm -hmm. to me. Um, And it also goes into who makes money off of viral trends, Mm -hmm. right? And so Tressie, the next question I have for you, you know, is, is there's a perception to me and there's perception, I would say with the kids that like, this is happening more often than it Mm. used to, right? Mm -hmm. Like that this is a new thing that, oh my God, every time I TikTok something, you know, I think about the Megan the Stallion dance where the kids refused to make a dance Mm -hmm. and then their non-dance became viral, Mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, it doesn't matter what we do, we steal it. Um, Is this new or are we just more aware of it? Does it have historical implications? Uh, both. I think both are right. And I want to piggyback on something Shantavia said. I think the key concept here, when you get outside of the legal framework, uh, you know, there's cultural power. Uh, and what I think young people and people who are rejecting aspects of capitalism are saying is that they do not trust precisely what you two are saying. The history of capitalism will not defend the property rights of Black people. That is the story. 
of Western colonialism. It is fundamentally the legal structure and the political structure and the economic structure of the United States of America. And there is something real to that, that we inherit, just like we inherit our cornrows and being fly and being dope, we inherit a knowledge about the fact that no one is going to defend our property rights. Um, And so what we tend to then do is put a lot of emphasis on our cultural power to enforce our ownership. We kind of want to enforce without owning. And one of the things that I think what we see happen in things like TikTok trends are the limits of that, the limits of having the cultural power to dictate the enforcement of your ownership of ideas and culture. Our problem is the media and the platform itself. So when we talk about assets and how we, uh, and I love this framework that for the first time, assets are trying to own assets. And, And frankly, legally, we don't have a framework for asset ownership of assets, right? Unless you think of yourself as a corporate entity. So social media platforms and uh, technology platforms writ large are part of the assetification of of modern uh, capitalism where everything is turned into an asset class. So we talk about not actually owning your home or not actually owning your physical car. You don't own the physical media now that you download and that you play. Um, The reason why you can't uh, change out the parts on your new truck, right? Because you don't actually own it. You are purchasing an asset, right? And your use of it is just this long-term licensure agreement. In its own way, social media does that with the culture that we're making. And what we run up against when uh, the kids, right, uh, want to opt out of it is that the platform itself can turn you into an asset just by virtue of you participating in the platform. You cannot control uh, what you put on social media because the terms and agreements of signing up for these is that you are licensing all of your uh, creative capital when you sign up for it. I think what we see in social media is uh, the most tangible form of what the asset class means. It's just, it's happening everywhere, but we can see it in social media. It feels very tangible that, listen, I can put this thing out, but I can't rein it back in. And not only that, I have nothing to, no, no entity, no institution to appeal to, to enforce my ownership, my legitimate ownership uh, of these ideas. And we have relied so long on being able to shame people and to admitting that we own it. Again, that's the cultural power that we want. We want to be able to do sort of like a targeted call out of people when they violate the, you know, the cultural norms of uh, who owns what. And in a mediatized society where the legal and political enforcement has moved from who owns the tangible good to who owns the intellectual property, right? We don't have anything to appeal to. We don't have anything to appeal to. I think that this is um, it's actually one uh, issue that we haven't quite wrapped our arms around what civil rights look like under that structure. We have focused so much on the ownership of tangible things um, that the diminishment of tangible ownership is a real challenge. Um, and I think we're just still in flux there and in this vacuum of a moment of saying, well, I can't sue you 
right? Because you can't, you can't sue anybody over your TikTok dance, or actually I'm gonna leave that up to the lawyers. I'm not sure that we can, uh, or prob- what I think you guys might tell me is that you can sue, but you might not have a good case. I'm you waiting for Chantalia to respond. I know, I'm ready. She's, she's doing the Birdman hand rubs. So I know it's coming, <laughs> uh, right? But what we want is enforceability. We want enforceability without legal uh, intervention. Uh, and I think the limits of that, that is that was easier to do when we were talking about sort of uh, uh, tangible goods. It is almost impossible to do in a digital virtu- virtual goods um, sort of uh, society. Um, and we just haven't reckoned with that yet. So if I may say, that was beautiful, Tressie. And the thing that sticks out to me about what you just said, that we have this system. The system is 2,500 years old. First intellectual property granted in 500 BC in Italy. And we have this system that's been around for so long and it's been so completely tied to individualized private monetization and the monopolization of innovation it's just hard to wrap our heads around thinking about this differently. First patent in the United States is older than the United States. We were granting patents in this country a hundred and something years before we were actually a country. And to your point, Carlos, about ownership. So I misspoke earlier when I said we've owned things for years. We, we may really not have owned anything until very, very recently, right? Mm-hmm. In part because... There were laws, institutional, national laws that said because people who were enslaved were not individuals, we were not uh, American citizens, we could not own property. So what's that mean? If I don't have a country of citizenship, I can't apply for a patent application. Mm -hmm. And so for 200 years, there's a 200 year head start in this country with people who are privatizing and owning innovation. And we're really just getting to the point where we can see maybe some of the fruits of that labor, but also understanding that it's an imperfect system, right? And so how do we reconcile those things? And I don't have all the answers. I do think though creators, prolific creators, like people here in this space, prolific innovators, we really do owe it to ourselves and to our communities to not say, oh, this problem is too big. Let's Mm -hmm. just know go with the current system the way it exists, but to think differently about our cultural capital and our cultural power. As you're so right, Carlos, about what you said about that viral TikTok challenge that really wasn't even a challenge. It was just Black folks standing around. After now, yeah. 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 We create culture and we have a lot of power around reframing and reshaping the way the legal system intersects with that. And if I can say about going viral online, your videos, your tweets and everything else, you can own that stuff. So, so Tressie is exactly right that the terms of use and the terms of service do provide that when you log into that platform, you create an account, you are creating a licensed relationship between you and the platform's uh, owner. Mm -hmm. But Against everyone else and amongst everyone else, uh-huh. you Outside certainly have of that. right. Okay, right. You certainly have intellectual property leverage. You certainly have the opportunity, if you so choose, to decide how you want certain types of content to be used, to be reused, to be remixed, to be mm-hmm. reframed. The challenge too is intellectual property law just is not keeping up with media. Yeah. It's not keeping up with social media. It's not keeping up with technology. Yeah. 
Yeah, one thing, you know, Shantavia counseled me through copywriting a tweet, <laughs> which I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I did it is because if I don't want to use it later, I don't bother, right? But mm-hmm. if it is something that is a part of my scholarship or elsewhere, I need to control how it gets disseminated, how it gets used. I don't want it diluted. I don't want it misinterpreted. Um, mm-hmm. But to enforce that copyright, I basically have to have Google alerts on every single platform right. looking yeah. for the terms of it to send takedown orders and like do it constantly. So the enforcement yeah. is hard, but it's worth and, it. And that's the change. You asked about what has changed and what's historically significant. The terms of ownership are, as Shantavia points out, ex- deeply uh, you know, embedded in the history of uh, of empire. That's not new. The idea of assets, not new. The idea of property, not new. What is new is scale, right? Scale overwhelms our ability as small creators to uh, enforce, to identify and to enforce and to respond to infringement on our cultural capital. So it's just sheer scale. And that is what technology platforms rely on, the sheer scale of information and data to try to defend uh, your property rights makes it extremely onerous for most people to even undertake it. What do you, like you said, what am I going to do about tracking my Google alerts across what is basically a limitless amount of producers uh, um, on the internet. And that doesn't even get into non-internet based production. Um, and so it's it, it's almost like a, um, you know, a deluge of if, if everybody's violating your copyright, who do you sue? You know, uh, and so what is historically new and significant is scale. And that is the thing that legally we have not been able to grapple with at the same time that economically we have created a lot of sophisticated financial tools for people to profit from that scale. We have not kept up with defending the rights of people vis-a-vis scale. You know, what I find interesting, you know, Tressie made the point that we have folks a lot on the, the capitalism and the ownership and the contracting, but not the civil rights mm-hmm. um, as we've expanded into, you know, social media. And uh, what I find interesting about Musk claiming to be pr- public square and wanting to mm-hmm. protect free speech and all that nonsense is that, you know, Twitter's a private company. It's going to be even more private when he takes it over. Um, it's all governed by private ordering. Mm-hmm. It's all governed by those contracts in terms of service. So beyond, you know, like a section 1981 civil rights <laughs> violation mm-hmm. or there are no civil rights. That's right. right? It's contractual rights. And mm-hmm. I, I keep telling my friends what I do on the business side and when contracting, when it comes to social media and a lot of these things that carries more weight than what the public law folks do, mm-hmm. because this isn't a government actor. Now, if he wants to That's concede right. and say, I'm the government. And therefore, I've got to protect the First Amendment like the government. Mm -hmm. But no social media platform has gone that far. They all talk the talk of free speech, but they're not willing to say we are quasi-governmental. That's right. That is right. I I saw Jack, uh, which I mean, how dare you? Like nobody wants to hear from you once you have taken your half billion dollar profit and sailed off into the sunset. Uh, But he's like, I don't think anybody should own Twitter. Did did you think that when you owned Twitter? Uh, He's like, but if someone does own Twitter, uh, I trust Elon Musk. What he's saying is he trusts Elon Musk to operate in the interest of Twitter, which are diametrically opposed to the interests of a public and civic square. So one of the, you know, the great, um, if Elon Musk does anything uh, in purchasing Twitter, I, it's a little perverse, 
but I'm actually, if not pleased, I'm okay with accepting that Elon Musk owning Twitter strips away the veneer of Twitter's publicness, the idea that it is in service to the public, which has been a cultural shield around the platform uh, since it was founded and certainly since it became quite popular. We can no longer uh, pretend (laughs) that it is anything other than what it is, which is, yes, uh, the uh, private enclosure of uh, democratically accessible but not democratically owned speech. Which leads me to the thought that these social media tech companies have grown I mean, in ways beyond, I think, what even they thought 10, 15 years ago, they've been able to grow largely unregulated, Mm -hmm. largely outside of legal restriction. And that's not to say that I think every social media company needs to be highly regulated, though I think there's some benefits, frankly, to some of that. But when you allow these great social experiments to take place online through these social media platforms, this is what you get. You get the mm-hmm. mess, right? You get the interplay between what Tressie described earlier as this, uh, this, this interplay between society and what society wants, what society is saying between capitalism and the, the desire to grow as fast as you can and to make as much money as you can. And, and I think one of the real important questions in all of this is knowing what we know now, knowing what we have now, seeing what we have now, what does our democracy do about it, right? Mm -hmm. Do we continue to allow these tech companies to grow, to privatize, to be public, to do whatever it is they do? Do we continue to allow them to create these communities in the way in which they have been? Or is it time Maybe not with that. I mean, who knows with our existing democracy? It doesn't seem like much is happening other than everything's on fire. Right. But <laughs> but, but how do we as as individuals, as people living in this community and not even just in the U.S., but around the world? Like, how do we begin to interact with these in many instances, lawless entities like they're yes, making the rules yes. for themselves? Yes. But what do we do about that? Do we vote with our feet? Do we leave Mm -hmm. these entities? And Carlos, this is something I think I heard you mention earlier. What happens next? What happens now? Now that we know all that we know, what Mm -hmm. do we do next? Can we create our own spaces where we have a lot of the things that we're talking about, the interplay between communal intellectual property, innovation, and the building of generational wealth through our content? What do we do about that now? Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of think the first step is to acknowledge that capitalism and democracy aren't symbiotic. Mm -hmm. You don't have true democracy in capitalism. Yeah. You have have it best in oligarchy. And there Mm -hmm. is, you know, billionaires get to do whatever they want and they always have. Mm -hmm. Right. The richest people always, you know, and this is generational. You could do Carnegie, Rockefeller. Like every generation has an Elon Musk who essentially is lawless because he has a lot of money. And the rest of us just kind of wait around to see what that rich guy's going to mm-hmm, do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so We're hoping lot- it's a library uh, Aguiarch as opposed to a, a Tesla Aguiarch. <laughs> but really, we're just waiting to see what their interests are. Right. We sit around like they want to go to space. OK, cool. Yeah. They want to buy up all of our. OK, like they don't have like the law has no mm-hmm. teeth for them. You know, I, I was on a panel yesterday about Elon Musk and the students were like, 
oh my God, what's the SEC going to do? And I'm like, going to charge him a fine that he doesn't care about. That's right. And then what? Yeah. <laughs> right. If he can, you know, think about the big fine that, that Facebook paid when they mm-hmm. gave all of our data to the Russians. They gave mm-hmm. all our data to the Russians, paid the biggest FTC fine in mm-hmm. history and kept on moving. Yeah, you know? regulatory fines are a cost of doing business. And technology companies, I think, figured that out very early on. Like, yeah, I was in rooms early. I don't know. This would have been like in the 2010s, which I guess is not considered a long time ago. Uh, and I remember being there with some governmental uh, consultants uh, to uh, tech companies that I won't name uh, at the moment. Uh, but, you know, two of the biggies uh, and their whole and, and their whole strategy. Once I once you read through all of the bureaucratic ease was this is the cost of doing business. Right. You just figure out how how many fines you are willing to pay. And then you operate up to the letter of how much you can pay to get away with. Uh, And as long as that is the structure of big business, and those are the incentives, by the way, when a private company is primarily um, obligated to maximizing the profit of the owners or shareholders, then that's what you get. Which to your question earlier, Carlos, this is not an issue then about litigating, I think, the finer points of the contract. This is about redefining the terms of civic inclusion, right? That you actually cannot have a participatory citizenship when you have this private enclosure of everything. Neoliberalism is frankly white backlash. Neoliberalism was about exactly this, taking all of the parts of society Uh, where minority people had advocated for and had some moderate success at inclusion and moving it out of the public square and into the private square where appeals to inclusion do not have any weight. (laughs) And so what we're seeing is the ultimate triumph now of that neoliberalism. But to your question, I don't think ultimately it is uh, compatible uh, with democracy, which is why we now have a legitimacy crisis. People do not believe in their uh, political institutions. And I'm not sure that can hold long-term. So I'm not sure, to Shantavia's question, I'm not sure what we do, but I know what we have been doing is what led us here. I say, you're right. You are so right about <laughs> that. So there's a, there's a professor named Anjali Vets who wrote a book about this very issue about intellectual property, cultural capital, what we do about it. And one of the things she describes in her book is this idea of the good intellectual property citizen and the bad intellectual property citizen. And what she basically says in the U.S. in particular is that white innovators are seen as the good quintessential Mm -hmm. intellectual property citizen. They are the standard bearers and they are the most important contributor to our economic and our ethical development. And so as long as we are looking to this framework of the white male innovator as the person who is driving our economic policy and our economic development. Mm -hmm. You're right. We will continue to get what we always got. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I wonder if, is there any obligation to hold, like we, we all know this, right? Everybody made their black lives matter statements. Everybody is allegedly woke now, according to the Republicans yet. (laughs) When it comes to actually paying people, when it comes to actually giving the book contracts, when it comes to Jimmy Kimmel actually putting someone on the show, we keep the same pattern going. And so what this makes me think of is the recent scandal 
the um, Bad and Bougie book by Jennifer Buck. Oh. But. Ooh, my blood pressure. I'm sorry. Blood pressure I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, y'all. Girl, I, got, I, had to. I got pre-tired, Shartavia. I was like, oh, <laughs> Lord, I need to lie down. Okay. I had to, y'all. But, but what, what I found most fascinating is she got a book contract. Right. That, that book was allegedly site-checked or whatever it is y'all do in social sciences. And there's a black woman, Cecily Bowen, wrote the book, Bad Fat Black Girls, a note from a trapped feminist. And I'm going to say her book title and her name so that everybody knows a black woman did it first. And everyone was pointing out that in Bad and Bougie, Jennifer Buck essentially co-ops this whole idea and writes it from a white woman perspective that's really, really offensive. Um, please don't look at the book. It's, I, I had hard conversations. It's very bad. bad. The open, I only read the first page and I, I had to take a nap. Um, but Jennifer Buck's response was, I cited her in the footnotes. Mm. Mm. That was her response. Mm. I footnoted her. Ooh. Who, okay. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm just going to say who wants to go first. Oh my. Oh my. Oh my gosh. So I really want to hear from Tressie as a social scientist, Ooh. as a person in this space. Because I don't know how many people had to sign off on this before mm-hmm. it got all the way to amazon.com. <laughs> yep. Many, many, just so you know, many. Yeah. Many people. It, yeah. It, blew my, it blew me for so many reasons. So I'm going to be yes. quiet. I have thoughts, but I really want to hear from you. Well, you're smart for being quiet because I should be quiet, but I'm not <laughs> as smart as you. Okay. So yeah, no, so uh, this book is this perfect um, uh, example of the intersection of several institutions that are uh, part of that legitimacy crisis that I was just talking about, actually, trying really hard uh, to chase the uh, the cultural value of Black lives without having actual Black people, which is a favorite thing uh, for institutions to do. Academic institutions and media institutions in particular have this in common, where there is um, this perceived cultural cachet to Black knowledge production and Black lives, but Black bodies bring with it the political problem of confronting the inclusion and the humanity of Black people in your institution. Just by showing up, we challenge how most institutions operate. And so to resolve that conflict, what those institutions really like to do is to have white people extract uh, that Black cultural value and perform it in the institution. That way you don't have to change how the institution works. So a white woman is a perfect sort of compromise often in those cases, which is why I think we see this type of appropriation happen so often in white feminist knowledge production and institutions. White women are sort of this bridge between the extraction and the appropriation, uh, right, uh, for the institution. They can accommodate white women in a way that they will not accommodate other uh, people. Um, And this book, like y'all said, it's bad, y'all, it's bad. And it's bad for a lot of reasons. I will say this, um, I I had her in the footnotes, would be a wonderful title to like uh, a rap battle album or something like somebody, I need somebody to write the anthology of we footnoted her uh, because the idea, this goes back to the question of what appropriation is and what extraction is. So the idea that credit is the same as uh, status, right? So I gave her credit. She's in the footnotes, but we of course know that the status in academic knowledge production anyway is about genealogy. It's about saying my ideas came from this person, not that this person informed my ideas. That's the footnote. My ideas 
came from this person, don't just owe a debt to them, but are possible because of their work. Well, that's status. That would be elevating the Black woman academic, not just to her equal, but to her superior, which frankly we do with white scholars all the time. You can't say capitalism without also saying Marx. Nobody will publish it. It's just the way it is, right? One of the ways that academic institutions and publishers have been really good at sidelining Black cultural production and intellectual property is exactly that, separating the people from the idea, demoting us to credit without elevating us to creator, right? Without respecting the genealogy of our ideas. Um, and it's a really interesting sleight of hand. Sarah uh, Ahmed has this book, um, um, on diversity work is what she talks about, diversity work in the institution. Uh, but one of the things that she talks about is the way um, colleges and universities and academia do these little slights of hand, right? To have diversity without diversity. And this one, the separation of credit from genealogy is one of those ways. Um, on the publishing side, I promise you 15 people had to sign off on that in different parts mm. to a different degree for that book uh, to be produced. Everybody from the acquisitions editor to the copy editor, to the fact checker, to the marketing department, uh, to the people who put the copy on amazon.com, many, many eyes and hands touched that publication, which says that that book may be an extreme case of this, but it is not atypical. Because everybody who touched that thought it was fine, thought it was fine. Now, if that's happening in this extreme case, it gives you a window into what's happening to Black scholars and cultural critics and cultural workers all the time. That, to me, was the grossest part of that book. I just want to know how much you got paid. The good news is probably not very much, to be fair. I mean, that, I mean that, oh, that makes me feel slightly better. Yeah, but. yeah, not very much. But you know what? It's not the pay. You know, in academia, mm -hmm. the value is not the pay. It's the, it's the CV line, mm -hmm. you know? And so even if she didn't get a lot of money for the book, which, again, I suspect she didn't, what she did get was credit, you know, for doing scholarship. Uh, her job became a little more secure uh, at the expense of someone else. And this is the really interesting intersection with intellectual property and the law, because we often think, oh, it's about IP. So that means it's all about money. But no, it is not. Mm -hmm, <laughs> and maybe mm -hmm. not ever about money. Credit, attribution, those things are important. And just looking at this and just thinking about as an academic, as a Black woman, as a person who creates content, just the way that this translates in other spaces. So, Tracy, I love that you said that this is an extreme case, but when we look across any number of different platforms, you can see this happening. If you look at TikTok, mm -hmm. right? How many times have we read about Black creators being treated differently, being undercompensated, mm -hmm. if compensated at all, on that platform? Or any, I mean, we can look at any platform and say the same thing, right? And, and so as we have this conversation about cultural appropriation, about the law, about what comes next, these things don't exist in silos. Mm -hmm. Jennifer Buck writing this book, Bad and Bougie, which it's hard for me to even say that. When I heard you say that, Tris, or Carlos, my blood pressure, truly, I think my, my heart started to beat a little fast. Like, and, and I'm not saying 
white people should never do X or mm-hmm. you should never do Y. But there are so many nuances that we want to throw in this package of, oh, we should be able to do whatever we want. Free speech, mm-hmm. first amendment, blah, 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 blah. Without looking into the nuance of not just law, social policy, community right. policy. How are we not just living within this really messed up system that we're in, but how do we make it better? How do we think toward new policy, new law, new ways of engaging with innovators and engaging with creators that supports the work they're creating? Because we're going to leverage it some way, but how do we support folks who are doing this really, really dynamic, interesting work? So my question from an IP perspective, you know, is it enough just to footnote legally? No, never. No. And academics get it twisted because Mm -hmm. of the way in which we're allowed to footnote, sometimes use quotation marks, sometimes not use quotation marks. It is never, not ever enough to just give someone credit. And this is where the lines get blurred on places like Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn and wherever, where you can just share somebody else's post. You can recreate someone else's dance and say, oh, I got this from you know, boo-boo on TikTok or whatever, right? But intellectual property does not allow you to say, oh, I gave this person credit, so they can't sue me. It Mm -hmm. never works that way at all, not with patents, not with trademarks, not with copyrights, not with any of those things, really. And so this misconception that just because you post something online or on the internet means we all get to use it. It's something I think for Black creators in particular and Black innovators, there's a real education around intellectual property that has to happen. And you can decide what you want to do with it. So you may decide, like Black Lives Matter, we're not going to go get trademarks. But you can damn sure bet when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're giving credit to the three original founders. That's right. We are, when we fundraise, right, we're making Mm -hmm. sure that money is going, whether they're local organizations or national or international, we're making sure that the way that we support and reward their work is being taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. So that ownership question to me, I mean, I talk about ownership a lot because I think so many creators leave things on the table when they shouldn't. So this is a very complicated issue. But sometimes it's not even about ownership. It's about this big picture question. Don't just say, oh, I gave her $100 or $500 or credit or whatever. There are lots of nuances there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think just the idea that someone like Jennifer Buck thinks that she can just use it and footnote it, you know, that has an historical context, right? It does. You know, historically, our ideas, our labor is free for any white person to Mm -hmm. use Mm -hmm. as they see fit. Mm -hmm. Um, So she truly, truly believed that she could just drop Cecily Bowen in a footnote and be done with it. Um, and, And what shocks me is, you know, or what the question I have is, how do we hold the publishers responsible? How do we hold the producers and the Jimmy Kimmels of the world responsible? Because somebody read that first footnote. Mm -hmm. And did they actually go read the book and see that it's basically the entire idea Mm -hmm. of her book, just poorly rewritten? What we have been pretty good about, I think if anything positive has come out of the sort of Wild West era of social media, um, is that it did call into question and make us reflect on when it is appropriate to seek legal recourse and when it is appropriate to leverage something I don't think we before this leveraged quite enough, which for lack of a better word is shame 
Just shame, just shame on you. Shame, which sounds really trite, but it is not. Arguably, you have to sue when shame fails. I think that if this thing worked right, right, most of the time, what you want to do is nudge people into the right behavior, whether they agree with it or not. You don't need to agree with it. You just need to do the right thing because not doing the right thing will become too much of a nuisance for you frankly. Um, And one of the things that I learned, especially from young activists who use social media very strategically during um, Black Lives Matter, but even before that, even before the, you know, the structure of Black Lives Matter existed, was this idea of calling out this really bad behavior, laying out the terms for other people in a way that they understood, right? which again, I think young activists um, and social media inclined activists have been very good about consciousness raising because it can sound like, it can sound like a very small issue when somebody's like, well, they footnote or what's the big deal, but to draw the connections for the typical person and say, you know what, this is like how on your job, how uh, Karen down the hall keeps taking your ideas and yeah, it doesn't cost you any money, but that's why Karen's been promoted and you have it. And people go, oh, oh, it's like that. Oh, well, then no, absolutely not. And so this sort of calling out to call these institutions back into their responsibility to people is actually supposed to be part of our toolkit um, for making this thing work. Um, So using scale of calling out the same way scale is used against us to undermine our uh, legitimate right and ownership of of our cultural capital um, and ideas. And I also think that the work that like you're doing um, here on the show and in sort of like the public discourse, I think it's really important for people to expand our vocabulary around these issues, right? Because it was really easy for, it was easy for the publisher who I will give credit, I think did a very full-throated apology, clarification of what went wrong, pulled the book. As far as those things go, that's about all they could have done at that point in the cycle. But to have prevented it then becomes the next step. All right, so you fix the problem. Now, how do you prevent it? Corporate responsibility on that part is about expanding, I think, uh, the definitions and the vocabulary to say, okay, this isn't just then about credit. This isn't just about uh, payment. This is about attribution. This is about how do we defend the enforceability of someone else's intellectual genealogy in your work? Who are you going to put in place to who has the cultural awareness to even evaluate that? Like setting out a toolkit of those ideas and steps uh, so that we can then hold a publisher accountable for failing to meet those um, is the work that I think people as part of the community. So like, that's our work. That's our work. I think as scholars, we're part of the community and the, to draw those lines and the pushback uh, is part of what I think we're supposed to be doing. And the, the, the public education piece is so critical. So for scholars who are engaged in this work, it is great and important work to do your research, do your scholarship in the comfort of your office, but also like Tressy, like Carlos, I know both of you do. How are you educating the masses? How are you making sure people understand? We use terms like infringement or cultural appropriation or plagiarism is another word that gets thrown around a lot when we see these things. Like maybe we're not really talking about plagiarism. Maybe we're not really talking about infringement. But here's how we can have better conversations across the board, across any number of different cultures. Because, Tressie, you're right. Public shaming works. Public shaming works in the intellectual property sphere 
all the time. And sometimes it's a lot more economical. You get that scale <laughs> to your point. Right. And if a company is shamed enough, they are going to make institutional changes. They may be more politically inclined to support policies and practices that better align with what our communities want to see. Cressy was being modest in discussing shame and not mentioning her New York Times column on shame, <laughs> which is very, very good. Um, now that Tressie is a regular New York Times columnist, um, I can you, actually Carlos. read. I can actually read the New York Times again. Uh, <laughs> they appreciate you for that. Trust me. <laughs> yes, because Tressie is in it. Tressie is in it. So um, you know, we're, we've only got a few minutes left. So I would love to hear whether y'all. I, I like to end the show positively. Do you think we can stop this? Right? Is is there a way for us to stop this appropriation? What do you think, Shantavia? I hate to give the quick answer, but my, my gut is usually what leads me down where I need to go. The quick answer is no. I think there always be bad actors from the beginning of time. <laughs> There's always mm-hmm. been that guy who is going to do that thing. Right. But but your question makes me think if I believe there will always be bad actors, if I believe the world is a broken place and will continue to be a broken place. And the real question is, what do we do? What do these platforms do? What do our policymakers start to do? And and it's easy to point the finger at any Black creator and say, hey, you need to just get ready. You need to stay ready so you don't have to get ready, right? Mm -hmm, You need to mm -hmm. get your LLC, your tax ID number, your intellectual property, and all those things. And I'm not saying that, that creators don't need to do those things, but a lot of responsibility falls, in my opinion, on platforms and on policymakers to listen to the shift and to listen to what we see happening in the data across social media platforms where certain communities are. I mean, frankly, what would Twitter be without Black Twitter? Hello. (laughs) What would TikTok be without Black TikTokers? Where would we be without the cultural purveyors of all the things that make social media great? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I, I don't think we can completely eliminate appropriation because there's a sense of entitlement from the United States Supreme Court in 1862 saying we get to decide the rules. So Native Americans, I don't care if you That's live on right. the land. That's we are right. going to take it and sell it amongst we will each other. Avoid every agreement we've ever <laughs> That's made. Right. With you. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. That's, That's right. exactly right. Yeah. yeah. If so, there's if there's anything positive that I can end on, I just always take a lot of comfort in the fact that Black genius has been a genius since before Black people were considered people in the Americas. And at some point, our innovation and our creativity is just shock and awe. And we may not always be able to extract all of the economic value from it, but also they ain't got no season without us. Mm. So, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. We'll probably keep doing it. And maybe, maybe one day we'll figure out how to both own it be able to enforce it and to share it in the uh, African-American diasporic tradition that Shantavia always calls me back into to say we are a collective people. That is our genius. And maybe one day we'll have a nation state uh, that deserves us. Oh, I got chills on that. Well, thank y'all. This is a great show. We need to do this more often. (laughs) We say this every time and we really need to make that happen. We really do. Because I just miss y'all so much. You know, COVID has just kept y'all out of, this energy feeds me. So I appreciate y'all being here. Thank you so much. 
Thank you everyone for listening to Get In Common. If you ever miss an episode, you can catch the rebroadcasts anywhere podcasts are played on the Voice America Network and our, on our YouTube channel. Feel free to send me emails to the show page and you can find me on social media at Carla C on all platforms. Thank you again for listening and I will see you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting Common with Professor Carlos Chapman. Please join us again next Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another thoughtful discussion. 